Uh, Disney has been receiving quite a bit of press lately, for those of y'all who have paid attention to that, for their new animated film, Turning Red. It's the turning-of-age story of an adolescent girl named May who's struggling through all the pandemonium of puberty. And uh, whatever your feelings might be about the movie, I'm sure that many of us can still remember and relate to those difficult growing pains. That's uh, my title for this message. I stole from Tony Merida and his commentary. Um, He, of course, stole the title from the classic 80s sitcom. But speaking of growing pains, especially that special period of adolescence, I'll never forget showing up to school the first day of sixth grade, super nervous about the start of middle school, same school for me, but a whole different campus now that had six all the way through 12th graders together. So I was low man on the totem pole. And so naturally, frantically, I started looking around for my friends, for familiarity and safety. When up walks this uh, boy who's a full six inches taller than me, sporting acne in a five o'clock shadow um, (laughs) at eight o'clock in the morning. And He says, hey, Will, how was your summer? And I replied, I'm sorry, do I know you? (laughs) And it was Will Woods. It was one of my good buddies who had been out of the country most of that summer, apparently long enough to have become a full-grown man. (laughs) And as I kept looking around, I noticed that some of my female friends had grown too and changed in uh, all sorts of exciting ways that, that had me, you know, feeling all sorts of new feelings and growing in ways. So anyway, I, I say that to, uh, to, to say that I think what we are going to observe this morning in Acts chapter 6 is the early church's puberty of sorts, because by this point in the book of Acts, the church, as uh, Britney Spears so poignantly put it for us, is not a girl, but she's not yet a woman. The church was birthed of course, in chapter 2 at Pentecost. But she has grown up quickly. Adversity will force force you to do that. And the church has had her fair share of trials already from the skepticism that it encountered right at the outset of Pentecost to the arrest they endured at chapter 4, the hands of the Jewish leaders, both threats within the church, hypocrisy in chapter 5, as well as threats from the outside, Sanhedrin. But the whole ordeal that the church is going to face this morning in chapter 6 may be its toughest struggle yet. And puberty seemed an apropos analogy to me because at its core, the most threatening issue that we're going to see here in chapter 6 is family disunity. And that is, of course, one of the worst side effects, from what I understand, of adolescence, stereotypically, isn't it? Strife within the home. You've got teenage hormonal angst leading to relational conflict, both with other siblings, rivalry and cantankerousness, as well as with one's own parents, disgruntled rebelliousness. That's some of what we're going to see on display, unfortunately, from the church here in chapter 6, because What's true of middle school, middle school maturation, or high school for you late bloomers, is also true of church development as well. Sometimes growing up is tough. 
And yet, as we noted in last week's message, healthy things grow. Growing may be painful, but it's good, especially if you have good parents who can help you navigate growing. And that's especially who is going to be at the focus and the center of chapter 6 here, in particular the church's parents, her spiritual fathers, the apostles who recognize that they can no longer keep up with all of this church growth on their own. Something's got to give, something's got to change. And so like many of our youth group parents who finally throw up their hands and say, we need help, we need help raising these little children of God, what he's just saying about The apostles appoint new leaders within the church to the new role, the office of deacon. So this is the birth of deacons in the church we're going to examine this morning. Church's elder brothers, the deacons. I get ahead of myself. So would you stand with me again as we uh, read the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 6? Only seven verses this morning, first seven verses, but there's so much here for us to, to unpack together. Hear the word of the Lord. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will, we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again this morning for your word. God, I pray that even as we submit ourselves under its authority now as your church, um, and even for a message like this, that could easily feel like uh, just insider information, just the church preaching to the choir. Uh, God, if there's anyone here this morning who is not an insider, who, uh, who, who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, as we've already celebrated this morning with Dakota through baptism, I pray that you might use even this message about something as seemingly mundane as church organization and leadership to to speak to them, to convict them of their sin and of their need for a Savior. pray this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. You may be seated. While you're being seated, public service announcement, I invite you to please silence your cell phones. So we learn four important things about church growth in these seven short verses. And as always, because Acts was written to and about the church 2,000 years ago, but it was also written for us still today, I want to apply each of these principles 
not only to their situation, but to our own church here at West Hills. We have been blessed, as some of you who've been here for many years, uh, at least the last two or three, we've been blessed in spite of COVID, as you know, many churches around us have closed their doors. We've grown here at West Hills uh, by about 70% over the past three years now, and uh, praise God for that. That's exciting. That should excite us. God is clearly moving and doing something uh, special here at this church, and yet, as we know, as they did 2,000 years ago, growth brings with it problems, and so we're going to examine some of those this morning. Sometimes they're good problems to have to fix, but they're problems nevertheless. The first thing we note here in verse 1 about church growth is that it's natural. Uh, I already pointed this out in the intro, healthy living things grow, but that's even more striking here as chapter 6 opens considering their context. The early church had at least two big reasons to try and stifle or suppress their own growth. The first was persecution. Chapter 5 had just concluded with the apostles getting beaten half to death for their faith, warned never to speak of Jesus again. I have to imagine that some of the churchgoers there pointed out the fact that, hey, the bigger this community grows, the more visible we become to our opponents, the bigger that target on our backs is going to grow. Some of them must have suggested maybe we shift our evangelism underground for a while, keep it on the DL, take a break maybe from preaching so publicly and provocatively in the temple. The second motivation for slowing their growth down that's even more highlighted here in the passage was insufficient infrastructure. That's the issue that these Hellenist widows are going to raise in point number two. In their view, the church has clearly grown too big, too fast, because people are starting to fall through the cracks. People are getting overlooked. The church's leaders and processes for caring for those in need simply can't keep up with the demand. And if the Hellenist widows had been in charge, they might have just said, you know what, let's just cap it. Let's just lock the church doors from the inside no new converts until y'all can figure out how to accommodate for those of us who are already in the church. A few months ago, I sat down with one of our members here who's an expert in marketing, and I asked to pick his brain about how he can continue to spread the word about West Hills. And after looking at our numbers and how fast we're growing, he asked me, are you sure we even want to keep advertising right now? Like with only full, four full-time staff and six lay elders trying to shepherd 170 people and reach out to another 170 or so non-member regular attenders? Do we even have the infrastructure to welcome in additional folks in the church right now? But remember, in just one altar call, the church in Acts grew from a group of 120 to more than 3,000 believers back in chapter 2. And then two chapters later, they had grown by another 5,000 people. And that's just the men. We're talking upward of 20,000 total with women and children. This is the origi original megachurch. No paid staff. Just 12 apostles overseeing it all. If any church ever then had an excuse to give themselves a free pass and just pump the brakes, rethink our whole growth strategy, it was this one. And yet, what do we find them doing at the end of chapter 5 last week? Every day in the temple... And from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. 
They never stopped marketing because they knew their product was too good, too needed. People needed Jesus too much. Well, we're going to have to solve these problems, I guess, somehow. But, but the solution is not going to be to quit preaching, to quit, quit welcoming people into the kingdom. And God honors their missional passion and devotion here in verse 1 with even more gospel growth. In these days, the disciples were increasing in number. You know, as I listen to some of y'all talk about some of your parenting struggles with your teens, I'll go home and hug Ellery, my daughter, six-year-old, a little tighter those nights, make her promise me that she'll never grow up. She's such a sweet age now. You know, I've heard kindergarten through fifth grade referred to as the golden years of parenting when they're old enough to wipe their own butts, but not yet old enough to be convinced of how much better at wiping butts they are than you, how much more they know than you about everything. I wonder how many of us, if we could genetically modify our kids to stay six years old forever, would we do it? Never have to put up with those difficult adolescent years, never have to say goodbye as they leave for college, get married and move away. It's what we've done with our dogs, isn't it? Breed them to look like cute little puppies their entire lives, cockapoos and multi-poos and yorkie-poos. It's downright unnatural, all these poos. It's my small dog soapbox. Because healthy living things are supposed to grow. And the church is a living organism. We are the body of Christ. Moreover, Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So according to Jesus, all this church growth stuff, any, any impetus to squelch the growth in the church, the building of his church, isn't just misguided. It's downright satanic. Satan loves it when churches plateau and stagnate and decline and dwindle and eventually die. Nothing excites Satan more than that. No, friends, growth is natural. We've got to normalize growth here. <clears throat> life group leaders, has your life group grown by 70% in the last three years? Healthy living things grow. If it hasn't, it's not due to a lack of interest. We've taken an average of 10 people every other month for the last three years through entry point, and the majority of them are checking that box saying they'd like to check out a life group. Are we welcoming them? Are we inviting them and bringing them into, including them in our communities? Well, our group's getting big, and then we'd have to split. Yeah, healthy living things grow, and they multiply. I'm not looking forward to the day I have to kick my kids out of the house either, but it's better than the alternative, isn't it? That's the natural life cycle of families, of life groups, of churches, of successful businesses, they grow. One last quick point here, though. Sometimes unhealthy things grow, too. You're not healthy if you're not growing, but just because you are growing, that doesn't make you healthy. Got that? You know what else grows? Cancer. Gangrene. Mold. Wildfires. And so we need to be careful to recognize that our growth here at West Hills doesn't prove that we're healthy. Joel Osteen's church is growing too. 
Islam is growing way faster than Christianity is worldwide. If the growth was goal in and of itself, if the goal was growth in and of itself, then we could definitely grow the church here even faster. We could turn our kids' area into an indoor uh, amusement park. We could launch a virtual campus for people who want to worship from the comfort of their own couches. We could do all sorts of things to grow the church. You can grow a body faster, too, by shooting it full of steroids. Grow your kids faster. Pump them full of artificial growth hormones. It's not good for them. It's not healthy. Growth may be natural, but it's only good if it's healthy, gospel-centered growth. So that's, that's what we're after here at West Hills. Truth number two, church growth poses, poses problems, though. Sort of the, the crux of the context of the passage. Notice Luke ties their problem in verse 1 directly to the growth. He says, when the disciples were increasing in number, that's when the complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. All this growth leads to what? Grumbling. Grumbling. Why? Because their Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Remember back in chapter 2 at Pentecost when Jews from all over the world had traveled to Jerusalem for the festival, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, etc., etc., etc. Well, 3,000 of them got saved and they decided to stick around and join the church in Jerusalem, but they were Hellenists. They were Greeks. They belonged formerly to the Jewish diaspora, the community of Jews living outside of Judea who were largely influenced by the, the culture of the surrounding Greek world. You remember Alexander the Great had conquered the entire known world a few centuries earlier. Pervasive cultural influence. And so many of the Jews who had grown up in Jerusalem, the Hebrews, apparently looked down their noses at these Hellenists as sellouts, their mudbloods. Now, there are actually three problems that we find with the church in verse 1. First is the partiality of the Hebrews. We know from chapter 4 that the church at this time was already operating as something like a communal welfare office for those in need, including widows who had no family to help provide for their material needs. Remember, there's no Social Security, no Medicare. So apparently certain Hebrews had been charged with overseeing the church's Meals on Wheels program. And it makes sense because they knew Jerusalem best. They knew where everyone lived. They knew what routes to take to avoid persecution. But they started showing partiality toward the native Judean widows. And that's a sin. James 2.1, show no partiality. 1 Timothy 5.21, do nothing with, from partiality. So there's partiality. Secondly, there's a, the complaining by the Hellenists, though. There arose a gongusmos, a murmuring, a grumbling. It's the same word Paul uses in Philippians 2.14 when he exhorts us to do all things without grumbling. So we've got more sin. Partiality on one side, grumbling on the other. Hellenist widows were rightfully upset by the sin of the Hebrews, but what should they have done about it? Instead of griping, they should have just come and talked to the apostles directly, right? Actually, according to Jesus in Matthew 18, before they even took it to the church leaders to fix the problem, what should they have done? They should have confronted the Hebrew dinner distributors directly and given them a chance to repent and make things right. Parents, can I get, just give you all a free parenting tip? I wouldn't ask to speak at the parenting conference this, this year, but let me just give you a free tip this morning, okay? If your kids are above the age of three, and they're fighting, 
You know what your response ought to be the first time they come to you to try and tattle on each other? Three words. Three magic words, parenting. Work it out. Work it out. Too many people overparent these days. We've got to teach our kids to, to work out their own problems. Plus, it makes your job easier, both in, in the short term and in the long term. Don't infantilize your kids. Growth is good. Teach them to grow up. That brings us to a third and biggest problem of all here, though, and that's their shared sin of disunity. Disunity is really what's the heart of the, the issue here. 1 Corinthians 1.10, be united. Psalm 133.1, dwell in unity. 2 Corinthians 13.11, agree with one, another, with one another and live in peace. Ephesians 4.3, maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Too many biblical injunctions for unity for us to even scratch the surface together this morning. But most significantly of all is Jesus' prayer in John 17. The very last thing Jesus prayed for his followers before he went to the cross was what? That they may be perfectly one, Father, so that the world may know that you sent me and love me, love them even as you love me. Brothers and sisters, our love for one another in Christian community is supposed to be the proof that God's love is real to the outside watching world. And for five chapters in church history, it was. I mean, the church's unity was a huge reason that God was adding to their numbers daily for five chapters. But then we get to chapter 6, and we get the first whiff of disunity in the church. And we've never been the same since. The world has given us lots of reasons to divide, especially over the last two years, hasn't it? Over masks and vaccines, over BLM and CRT, over candidates and elections. But I want us to consider specifically this morning just a few of the reasons, the ways that Satan would love to use even something good like our church growth to divide us if he can. Any foothold he can get. One of the more common answers we hear at entry point. For example, when we ask, what attracted you to West Hills? Well, we were just looking for a smaller church. And it, I sometimes let that slide if you're new, an entry point. But by the time you make it to the membership class, I try and make sure that I've asked you a question and response. So then what's your plan another two or three years from now when, God willing, the church continues to grow and we end up the same size of the church you're leaving to come here from. You just going to leave here? Because if so, we're not really interested in having you as a member, to be honest. Size is a bad reason to leave a church. I know small churches who don't love one another well, and I know big churches who do. It's not a size issue. That's a culture issue. Here's another related issue. I love how accessible you are as a pastor I've never been at a church where the pastor invited me out personally for lunch. Well, I'm blessed to be able to do that for now. But will you stick around the church when our processes inevitably have to change? We're getting close to having as many people here as there are days in a calendar year. I'm running out of lunches. I don't say that to make myself sound self-important. For most of you, one lunch with me is probably more than enough. I'm just saying that, that that is a small church culture kind of thing that will have to change if and as the church continues to grow. 
The list of potential problems goes on and on. More people means more money. You know what P. Diddy said, more money, more problems, right? Bigger budget just means more opportunities to disagree over how to spend it, more room to fight. We're already starting to run out of chairs in this service. Look around. Let me talk to some of y'all, 1045 people, for a minute. Been, I've been sort of treating this one as a work it out amongst yourselves kind of situation. Still waiting to see who the, who the best Christians are. Who are going to look around and realize, man, we're running out of chairs for, for visitors. We don't want them to come and feel like there's not a seat for them. Maybe I should just get up two hours earlier and come to the 9 o'clock service. Would that serve the church, help the church out? Yes, it would. Please do that. I'm still waiting to see which of the two Sunday school classes is the more godly one. Our big, big 9 o'clock Sunday school classes, which one is going to say, hey, would it help the church if we moved to 1045? Would that free up seats? Would that balance the services? Yes, it would. Who's going to be the better Christians? <laughs> I think I'm joking. <laughs> what about when Pastor Brian has to start cutting people from the worship team? Because we're blessed to have five or six pianists now volunteering to serve, but we don't actually need five or six. We just need the best three. Are you going to get your feelings hurt when you get cut? You're going to leave the church. How about this one, how do, uh, maybe most important of all, how do we make sure we stay on mission as a church as we get big enough that we could easily just fill up our church calendar socializing with one another, entertaining ourselves to death? How do we, how do we remind, remind ourselves to stay outwardly and upwardly focused on the mission of the church? Church growth poses all kinds of potential problems. But... Ready for the good news? Number three, church growth also presents us with opportunities. It presents us with opportunities. I believe it was John Adams who said, every problem is an opportunity in disguise. It's a good mindset to have in life, isn't it? <clears throat> That's how the apostles treat this problem in Acts chapter 6. Or these problems, plural, I should say, all three of them, problems of partiality, grumbling, and disunity, they find a solution that not only solves all three of them at once, but they also manage to circumvent three additional problems that would have undoubtedly arisen had the apostles just opted for the easiest solution to the widow's grievances here. Let me explain. The easiest solution in some ways would have been to just step in and oversee the Meals on Wheels program themselves, right? Someone must have at least suggested that to them because the apostles felt it necessary in verse 2 to call the full number of the disciples together and let them know, hey, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, we don't know whether that idea came from the widows or if it came from the Hebrew table servers who didn't want to go care for the Hellenist widows, or if perhaps it even came from one of the apostles. But initially, at least, that idea must have had some appeal for three reasons. Three reasons to advocate for, for that solution. You know, they say that if you want something done right, sometimes you got to do what? Do it yourself. You lay people clearly can't be trusted to allot the food fairly, so we'll just step in and take care of it. Number two, no one likes asking for help, do they? I love like 90% of my job here at the church, but if I could offload 
one of the things that I get to do, it would be recruiting volunteers. Hey, we've got an opening right now at the church for the Deacon of Hellenist Widows food deliverer position. And the job's about as fun and sexy as it sounds. Did I mention it's unpaid? Are you interested? Number three, and maybe most obfuscating of all for the apostles, though, is I'm sure that they didn't want the rest of the church thinking that they viewed themselves as above the work, right? Like, wait a minute, Jesus washed y'all's feet, but you can't even serve a poor widow some food? Didn't Jesus say a servant is not above his master? Didn't he say the greatest among you should be your servant? But now y'all think you're too good to serve tables? See, there were some compelling reasons for the apostles to, to just step in and do the job themselves. I imagine this was one of their longer apostles' meetings if they did, decided things by consensus like we do at our elders' meetings. But eventually, they pray and discuss through it, and they make the difficult but the right call. We're going to stick to praying and preaching. Y'all, the church, need to choose seven men to oversee the food distribution, and then we'll anoint them for the job. Because what the apostles ultimately realized was that there are three even bigger reasons not to just do it themselves. Three opportunities here that they would miss if they did it themselves and that help avert three bigger problems. Let's walk through them. The first was the opportunity to prioritize. And prioritization prevents that problem of mission drift. Every minute that the apostles spend distributing food, they know is going to be a minute they're not preaching and distributing the gospel. Every table that they deacon, that's the Greek word, verb, diakoneo, to serve or minister, means less time that they can spend deaconing God's word. It's the same root word in verse 4, the ministry of the word and prayer. Some of us in the church are called to serve tables. Some are called to serve the word. Both are important. We don't want widows dying of starvation on our watch at West Hills, do we? Right? So that, that's important, meeting physical needs. We talked about that a few sermons ago. It's not that one's better than the other. It's just different. We've got different callings here. And it may start with just distributing a few meals for the widow's ministry, but the next thing they know... They're going to be running the church's matzo ball soup kitchen for the missions ministry. They're going to be leading the midweek Torah school for the kids' ministry. They're going to be the ones dragging the dead bodies out for the finance team after people lie about their offering at the altar. Remember that story? And before you know it, you've filled the church with lots of great programs, but what's conspicuously absent is all the preaching and the praying. Because who's charged to do that? It's the apostles, the elders today. Prioritization ensures that the main thing stays the main thing. But here's the thing about church growth. The main thing may change over time, and we've got to recognize that too. When they were still just a church of 120, the apostles might have been able to preach and pray and still serve those two or three widows in the congregation at the time. And they may have needed to, because again, you only got 108 other people to play with, who, who, who might already be occupied, running the missions team, the kids' ministry, the finances, the worship team, whatever. But one of the great benefits of growth is that it allows us 
to prioritize. It allows for greater specialization. Your priorities can get more narrowly focused. You, know, you hear those stories early on. Bill Gates was the one handwriting all the code for Microsoft in his garage, right? Jeff Bezos was the one driving packages all over the country for Amazon. Probably not, but you get the point. As the thing grows, your role and your priorities change. I think of back history here, recent history at West Hills, before I transitioned, transitioned into the lead pastor role here, there wasn't a job description for my position, and so the elders asked me to write one. And one of our former elders in particular questioned me on it. He said, so I see you've outlined here three overarching responsibilities for yourself, preaching, teaching, shepherding, caregiving, and leading and developing leaders. So how would you envision yourself prioritizing uh, and, and deciding between the three? You know, where are you going to spend your time? So that's a great question. So I thought about it for a minute, and I replied, well, I think the, the preaching and teaching is the most important, and then probably the shepherding, and then the leading, so maybe 50%, 30%, 20%, roughly. And his response was, you think John MacArthur only spends half his time in the Word preparing his sermons? You ought to be spending 90% of your time on the preaching. My response was, you think John MacArthur solo pastors a church of 170 people? This is before we hired Thad. Much less Brian, brought Allie on full-time. I said, I'll tell you what, I said, I would love to spend all my time here preaching. Why don't you handle all the hospital visits and do all the premarital counseling and the postmarital counseling and run our staff meetings and entry point and the membership class and oversee the life groups. And uh, when I'm getting emails and phone calls from people who don't like what I preached on on Sunday, why don't you handle all those and run interference and you can ha sit down and have those chats for me. That'd be great. I'd be delighted to devote 100% of my time to the preaching here. Now, I don't share that story to denigrate him or to dignify myself, but to celebrate with you as a church that we are in a healthier place now than we were three years ago. It's not healthy to have a lead pastor who has to fill up the baptistry the night before he baptizes people. That's what I was doing. And there's just a clear role distinction there biblically between elder and deacon. Again, not that one's better or worse, but you've got shepherd leaders and you've got servants. And differentiation and prioritization are important. If my priorities are going to remain preaching and praying, then that means someone else has got to be the one to step up and unclog the church toilets and run vacation Bible school and brew coffee for us on Sunday mornings and put the slides in the computer, and, and I could just go down the list. And that leads us to opportunity number two, and that's the opportunity to empower, empower the church, which prevents the problem of complacency, laziness. Notice, not only do the apostles refuse to serve the tables, they refuse to even elect the table servants. They empower the church to be the ones to choose the seven deacons. This is congregational church polity at its finest. And I want you to notice three things, three effects that their empowerment had on the first century church. Number one, because the church actually got a voice in choosing their own leaders, the church was more open to the change and to submitting to their authority and receiving them 
as leaders, as deacons. Verse 5 says, what the apostles said pleased the whole gathering. And so it it creates buy-in. Number two, I believe it must have inspired others in the church to believe and to dream and pray about how God might use them in leadership one day in the church, considering that they were called to select men, verse 3, from among you. Notice that phrase. They didn't just hop on churchstaffing.com and find the best resume to source the problem out. They saw a need and the church stepped up to meet it from within. This is what the church does. Listen, our paid staff here, Thad and Brian, Allie, Lana, myself, we clearly have, I hope, job security. We have a role to play, right? an important role to play in the life and the leadership of the church. But if we did all the work, we don't. I'm not saying we do. But if we did, hypothetically, right, that would make y'all lazy and complacent. That's not good for you. We love y'all too much to do all the work and not let you have the privilege of helping us do the work of the church. Thirdly, by being empowered as decision makers, the church becomes more empathetic You become more empathetic as you get to know the church, as you're serving them. It's interesting to note that all seven of the new deacons that the church chooses have Greek names. They put themselves in the Hellenist widow's shoes here, and they pick Hellenist deacons who they know aren't going to keep neglecting the Greek widows. So they're, they're, they're empathetic as they're in and amongst and with one another. And so empowering the church to be the church produces buy-in, inspiration, and empathy. That's a good combo. And then thirdly, the third and last opportunity that, that growth presents us with as a church is the joy of delegating. The joy of delegating which helps prevent the problem of burnout. You know, the other issue with having apostles, or in our case, elders, who run the soup kitchen who run the kids' ministry, who are in the finances, in the, on the welcome team, serving in the AV booth, serving on the worship, is they get tired. They get tired. And if they do try and stay on mission, if we do try and still devote ourselves to preaching and prayer on top of everything else, we're going to get exhausted, and we're going to end up actually resentful of the very people we've been called to serve. We don't want that to happen. Delegating is a beautiful thing. A leader's job In many ways, whether you're a pastor or a parent, a ministry leader in a church, a manager at work, leader's job is in some ways to put themselves out of a job, at least out of your current job. You learn to delegate, empower others, and then you find bigger fish to fry. That's what the apostles do here in verse 7. They prayed, they laid their hands on the seven new deacons, and they entrusted them with the responsibility of overseeing the Meals on Wheels program. The widows tried to thrust it all on the apostles' shoulders, and they say, no, we're, we're going to delegate this one out. And this story is reminiscent in that way of the story about Moses in Exodus chapter 18, where his wise father-in-law Jethro has to confront him about his, his need to delegate out his role as judge over every little minor dispute amongst the people of Israel, delegate that out to other leaders other qualified leaders. They've got to be qualified. That's one of the caveats here. Same thing holds true back in Acts chapter 6. 
got to be men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Not everybody is called to be a deacon yet, is ready to be a deacon yet. 1 Timothy 3 adds, deacons must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Let their wives likewise be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. It's a high calling. Church leadership is a high calling. James 3.1 says, not many of you should, should strive even to be teachers, leaders, because you're going to be judged according to a, a different standard. But we've got to have them. We've got to have them. The church falls apart without them. And so what's the application for us here at West Hills today? I'll just shoot you all straight. I'll be really honest with you. We need more deacons. We need more servants at the church. We are so grateful for those of you who serve this church in so many ways and have faithfully for so many years. I could go down the list. I mean, I'm looking around. I could go down the list of all the things that everybody in this room, most of the people in this room, do for this church. Right? But I'm, I'm here to tell you that with the, the problem of church growth comes more work. You know, there's, there's more ministry. There's more work to be done around here. And that just means we need more help. And so we've got we've to find ways to get those of you who are new and coming and checking things out. You know, that's great. We don't want to be pushy, but we kind of do because uh, we want to get you plugged in. We want to give you a job. We need to give you a job. We need more help. And then maybe, maybe for some of you, you've you know, been serving, you've been ushering, greeting for years and years, faithfully, love that, love that, it was a great, important role, first, first touch, first impressions, important, but, you know, honestly, we'll, we'll give that role to a, a friendly, you know, person who's been at the church for a month, um, there are other roles that we, we need people who of, are of good repute, who has been tested first, who we've had a chance to, to get to know you and see you in action, and, and, and we're willing to give you the, the stewardship of leadership in the church. It is a high calling. It's not for everyone, but we need more. We need more here at West Hills. We need more than seven elders. There's a certain, you know, elder to, to member ratio that we're trying to stay with so our elders can best shepherd people. And we're, we're stretching that. We need more life group leaders. There's a certain, you know, target 8 to 12 people in a life group. It's a great number. You can all really, like, share what's going on in your life. You get to 15, 20, like some of our life groups have. It's not, it's not what a life group's supposed to be. We need more life group leaders. We need people to step up, is what I'm saying. And so I'm just going to ask you humbly this morning to pray. Is that you, right? Could you be the one-on-ones that helps our elders get back to, we, we've still got elders de facto deaconing the finances here at West Hills. We've still got elders unclogging toilets. We've got elders serving in kids' ministry. We've got elders overseeing the community needs team here. And I, I'll just call it what it is. It's not right. It's not biblical. We need deacons who will do those things. 
But that's going to mean, and that's because the elders love this church, and they don't want themselves to be thought of as above the work. And because they, they, they don't, it's not because they don't trust you, it's because they don't want to ask. But I'm asking you this morning, we need deacons. Is that you? Is that you this morning? Pray about that. And if it's not the deacon role, maybe it's just the serve. Maybe it's not leading that ministry team, but it's serving on a ministry team. We need more people, more hands on deck. In conclusion, point number four, end on a high note. Church growth should excite us. It should excite us. Please don't hear me saying this morning, leave the church. We've got too many people. We don't know what to do with you. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying stay and serve the church. We know what to do with you. Serve. That's what to do. Church growth should excite us. Don't miss here in verse 7. Up until this point, the Lord has, has only been adding to their numbers. Chapter 2, he added to their numbers. Chapter 4, he added to their numbers. Once he subtracted from the numbers, chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, we remember that. God promises he'll never divide the church. But chapter 6, mathematical functions, right? Chapter 6 is the first mention of God multiplying his church. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly. But realize the context for it. It's, it's healthy leadership and organization and oversight. That's how important good leadership is. Prioritizing, empowering, delegating. These are the mechanisms that God uses to multiply his church. We've got a scale issue, right? Again, I'll just make it personal practical here. Church growth experts talk about small church under 100 people, small medium church, 100 to 300. Then you've got a, another bubble, 300 hump that's either going to make you or break you as a church. You're either going to be able to figure out how to scale and, and figure it out and continue to grow as a church, or you're not, and you're going to shrink. My understanding of the history of this church is about 10 to 12 years ago, they got to that same, we got to this same bubble, didn't figure out how to scale, shrunk. So there's an opportunity here, but there's also a threat for us at West Hills. We, we just need to realize that. Are we going to figure it out? Are we going to step up? Are we going to empower people, delegate? All of that, learn from the past, be excited about the potential of seeing more people come to know the Lord, grow through his word, it should excite us, it should embolden us to want to pray for that. Notice also in verse 7, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The priests, these were the guys who were the number one persecutors of the church. But they were also guys who appreciated good organizational effectiveness, orderly structure and processes, perhaps is what brought the priest to the church. They're like, I don't know about this whole gospel thing. I mean, there's undeniable power. We see people getting healed by shadows. I mean, this is crazy. We're interested by it, but it's a little loosey-goosey for me, and it's when they bring some organization to it. A hierarchy to it, if you will. That's when the priests are like, okay, we're in. We often hear people criticize organized religion, right? I'm spiritual, but I'm not a fan of organized religion. I want to say, do you prefer disorganized religion? Like, what? Can, you, can you make religion so mechanical that you eliminate any need or role for the Holy Spirit? Sure. But 
We know that our God himself is not a God of confusion, but of order, 1 Corinthians 14. Organization is good. God uses it to grow his church, and he does it here by attracting even the church's fiercest opponents, the priest. What an encouragement that should be to us this morning. Bring it back to the gospel. God can truly save anybody, and he can use any means to do it. He can use something as seemingly mundane as your leadership structure to save people. Praise God. You know, some, some folks in the church get very leery about counting people, about taking attendance. They say, it's not about the numbers, it's not about the numbers. That's true. But you do realize there's a whole book of the Bible called Numbers, right? Because apparently numbers are important to God. Because people are important to God. Luke counted people because people count. Here at West Hills, we count people because we count you, because you count to God. You matter to God, so you matter to us. It matters to us whether you're here or not. Who's here? It matters to us whether those outside the church are coming in. We count how many new people we have on Sundays. Because it matters to us whether those outside the church are welcomed into it and transformed by the life-changing good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ died and was raised for the forgiveness of their sins. It's the gospel. We have the blessing, the privilege, the responsibility of stewarding here. May we do it together, whatever role God has called you to play in that. Amen.